Welcome to the new Flash podcast. Uh, I'm here with Jesse Hassinger yet again as we continue the Psycho franchise. Um, we're here with Psycho 3. I believe it is a 1986 film, a few years after Psycho 2, which was that, you know, 22 or 23 years after the original. A uh, much shorter gap this time. Uh, Anthony Perkins uh, directed this. I believe it's his debut film. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting movie. Roger Ebert loves it for some reason. Uh, we'll talk about that at some point. Um, and if you're wondering why this episode was delayed, um, it's mostly because I ordered the Blu-ray two, uh, full, honestly, like a month ago or something from Shout Factory directly. And I waited like two weeks and nothing happened. And so I had to cancel that order because they just never shipped it. And then I ordered it again. And I got the fourth movie, but I, the third movie just never arrived. So I got it on eBay again, and that one got lost. So, like, there's been three copies of this movie that is supposed to have been sent to me. One of them is in the mail, sitting in Jersey City somewhere. Um, and it will, when it gets here, I will watch it. I will watch, or I'll, all I want to do <laughs> is watch the commentary and report back the cool details that I hear. Because every review that reviewed the disc says, like, the commentary is great, really cool details if you're a fan of the movie. So, uh, very vague, and I have. Haven't been able to find much detail online. So next week on our Psycho 4 episode, you can expect uh, some Psycho 3 commentary details if it arrives. But um, <laughs> There's been a run on Psycho 3 Blu-rays. People are just snapping them up everywhere. Yeah, uh, this podcast is immensely popular, I understand. But um, <laughs> everyone cool it. I need to get it first before you can buy up all, uh, all the rest of them. Um, and is there anything else to talk about movie wise that's new? I, oh, I saw Becky, which I reviewed on the bonus episode and unless Jesse saw it, uh, did you see it? I did not. I just, okay. it just passed me by. Perfect. Because I already have enough. Uh, I'm going to throw in a clip about Becky later into this episode. Cause I've already talked about it. I think it's, uh, worth watching for sure. Um, I've watched a lot of movies since watching psycho three, but anyway, um, <laughs> Let's just get into the news so we can get into Psycho 3 because I've been seriously stewing in my apartment, like refreshing the USPS website, <laughs> waiting for this fucking thing to come so I can just watch it and talk about it so I can move on with my life. And I haven't been able to, I feel like my life's been at a standstill for two weeks. <laughs> You've just been, this is the real, the real quarantine has been waiting for Psycho yeah, 3. Yeah, <laughs> I feel insane. I feel fully crazy. I am the, I am the real psycho in all of this. Um, all right. So before we get into Psycho Three, I have a bunch of news. News. First bit of news. Bits and pieces is what this segment is called. Joe used to do music. I don't have time for that shit. Um, <laughs> AMC Theaters has, quote, substantial doubt it can remain in business. Uh, AMC Theaters, a.k.a. the world's biggest movie theater chain, said on Wednesday it has substantial doubt it can remain in business after closing locations across the globe due to the uh, coronavirus pandemic. The theater chain, which closed its theaters earlier this year, expects to have lost between $2.1 billion and $2.4 billion in the first quarter. The company also said that its revenue fell to $941.5 million, which was down roughly 22% from $1.2 billion in the same quarter last year. This quarter, the situation has gotten substantially worse. We are generating effectively no revenue, the company said in a regulatory filing Wednesday. AMC will continue to monitor the potential lifting of various government operating restrictions, but added that the chain has serious challenges, even if restrictions are lifted. That increases studios uh, holding back new films from being shown. 
Even if governmental operating restrictions are lifted in certain jurisdictions, distributors may delay the release of new films until such time that operating restrictions are eased more broadly domestically and internationally, which may further limit our operations, AMC said. The company said it had a cash balance of $718.3 million as of April. We believe we have the cash resources to reopen our theaters and resume our operations this summer or later. Our liquidity needs uh, thereafter will depend, among other things, on the timing of a full resumption of operations, the timing of movie releases, and our ability to generate revenues. Um, very apocalyptic sounding headline that when you get down to it, I mean, I think they're just being realistic. I mean, they said they're going to be have enough cash to reopen. So I guess they're just basically saying, hey, theaters, like, uh, please start putting shit out so we can get back to business. Like, what do you take of this statement other than, like, it's just being there, like, on an earnings call having to explain what's happening? Yeah, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like you said, it sounds very realistic. Like, they're not completely scraping the bottom of their bank account yet. But, uh, and I, I do think, though, that they're, you know the what they're sort of characterizing is the you know questioning like oh will, will theaters be open you know in in july or august or whatever i feel like maybe should be tempered with a bit of like maybe hold on like <laughs> it just doesn't seem that likely right now does it right that movie theater is going to be like open next month like um just, well I, the new that, york that reopening starts tomorrow after uh, uh stage one reopening which apparently is still basically what we've already been doing and like I think construction yeah. resumes. Like, there's like a bunch of basic things that start happening again, but it's a positive. A bunch sign. of a bunch of stores that have, have been, yeah, a bunch of stores that have been like basically doing curbside pick it pick up already are now actually allowed to do that. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> like not a lot is going to change, from my understanding, for a minute. Yeah, I think we well, and movie theaters aren't until phase four, which if we really do, you know, go through these two week periods, phase four would be for New York, right? Actually, after the opening weekend, the supposed opening weekend of uh of tenant there the 20th of july i think and that assumes everything goes perfectly that there aren't any big spikes or whatever and these two-week periods seem really short to me i'm like i feel like a month would make a lot more sense but um i read i believe on business insider uh that the biggest movie theater uh, nato said uh 90 of global theatrical markets will be open by the release of tenant in july and that i think they're full of shit yeah that sounds like it's full of shit (laughs) So this is the National Association of Theater Owners, which represents movie theaters across the U.S. They said that they expect 90% to be open. A representative for Chris Nolan did not respond to a request for comment. Warner Brothers did not immediately respond to a request for comment. So Tenet still has its July 17th release date. The new trailer pointedly did not have a date on it. It said coming to theaters. But the copy included on the trailer, like from the YouTube video, said July 17th still. Cinemark said this week, that um didn't cinemark issue a reopening guide um i believe they have something like yeah they announced four phase reopening for movie theaters starting june 19th that weekend we'll see a test phase where five theaters in the dallas fort worth area will reopen the following weekend approximately a third of cinemark's theaters specifically those in larger markets will reopen while phase three the following week we'll see an additional third open their doors under the plan phase four will kick into effect the weekend of july 10th with all of cinemark's locations open by that date but that again doesn't that go up against like yeah that's completely made without any consideration of they own theaters in new york city and new york city theaters are not going to be opening on july 10th so it's it's all seems like kind of a shell game to me i actually cinema pointedly doesn't have any in new york because i know that because i work they don't they don't 
They do, they oh. might do they own Regal? They might now. All I know is Cinemark I at the they, yeah Cinemark at the time of I uh, when I was Regal. working at movie theaters was like their own thing. And I oh, okay. worked at one in Evanston, Illinois. There's a bunch. There's a bunch in Illinois. There's a bunch of California. I know that, and I'm sure they're throughout the country. But there's none here because I came to New York. <laughs> I moved to New York with a duffel bag full of rain checks for Cinemark movies because yeah. I know the management <laughs> at the theater still. <laughs> so I was ready to see movies. Like when I was in LA, I, I went out of my way to see movies at Cinemarks. Um, uh-huh. But there's none here. But anyway, yeah, that plan to reopen seems to be ignoring the fact that most or some U.S. states are not ready. <laughs> um, right. So it's just, it all seems crazy, especially to think that Tenet is just going to come out. But, I mean, there are, drive-in, drive-ins are opening up more than ever. Like, there's going to be more of those than there were in the past few years because I'm sure old ones are reopening. I'm sure, I, I already know there's one. Did you did you hear about Greenpoint? There's going to be a Greenpoint uh, drive-in? Yeah, I think they've already started doing it, although they're doing, it really sounds to me like a kind of fancier version of Summer Screen or those kind of, you know, they're going to like, like a summer they're like showing the yeah. goodies or whatever. I don't think they're going to be showing like King of Staten Island or Trolls or whatever. I think they're probably just going to be, sh- I mean, maybe they're just trying it out and they will show new movies, but I got the impression that's going to be like you know the stuff that would normally play at outdoor theaters in the summer i'm gonna my new plan is i'm gonna quit my job i'm gonna (laughs) wait for the pandemic to cool down and then i'm gonna reopen i'm gonna open a movie theater that is socially distanced from the ground up so you build Uh it you build it you design it that way see uh i mean admittedly i mean what nighthawks theaters are that tiny where like you can only fit 30 or 40 people so right. why not do that in like a you know different like an alamo draft house new york uh, brooklyn sized theater but socially distanced i mean those those things are you know they're a little spread out in there i would just imagining yeah six feet apart uh that's an easy way to get people to come back and uh yeah who wants to give me capital for that uh <laughs> this is how i'm crowdfunding now um <laughs> But yeah, AMC stuff sounds grim, and I, you know, I don't know how they stay in business if the theaters don't open up soon. But uh, I don't know. My my prediction, I guess, for Tenet is that it will open. It will open in theaters where it's able to, like in apparently Texas. It sounds like it'll be good to go, perhaps. <laughs> um, and I think it will open in drive-ins where it's able to. And I mean, God, you got to imagine Nolan being furious that his movie's gonna open at a drive-in, like. <laughs> He's not going to want that sound mix, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh. That's true. Yeah, I I had actually heard, and I'm de- I'm re- reluctant to even quote it because it's the you know, that dude, the In Snyder. <laughs> uh, that guy blocked me on Twitter, and I'm proud of it. He's <laughs> yeah. the worst. He- he sucks, yeah. but uh, he. Um, it's almost. He, a, it, I feel like it's a parody account sometimes. Like, yeah. the shit he says, it is insane. I feel like uh, some <laughs> funnier dudes than I did on Twitter uh, have like basically made the in Snyder not an actual account, but have have poked fun at him in, in a funny way. But oh, I, for sure, I won't steal their joke. But um, he uh, he had something about he had heard from some of his sources because you know he's on the inside. He is very his sources he are right. His phone call at his at your peril. Yeah. Uh, that he had heard that basically Tenet is going to move, and the only reason they haven't announced it is they haven't really landed on what date they want. Or oh, like for how, real? Yeah, but he, Did he just know, report this, or when? Uh, it's like this week he reported uh, it. I, you know, it wasn't sourced or anything. On his, to, what's his website? Hollywood Heroic or some shit? Is that his? I feel like that's, an, I think he's on, I want to say he's a Collider or something. I don't know, who knows? He's been like, he's been, he's bounced around a bunch of places. Well, because he's been fired, because yeah. he's horrible. <laughs> Look, he gets the scoops, damn it. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Exclusive scoops. Uh, yeah, I mean, so take that with a, a grain of salt, uh, like a couple really douchey grains of salt. Um, but, 
you know, yeah. He, and that seemed, I mean, that seems plausible to me, certainly, although that isn't, that's no kind of confirmation that they're, if they do want to move it, I'm sure they don't want to move it and then move it two more times. So I think if they do move it, they're going to try to move it someplace where they're sure I, it's going to come out. I just think yeah. it doesn't really matter at this point where like, we're in a, we're in a different phase of like living where... Uh. I think they could put out Tenet on the date it's supposed to come out wherever it's able to come out, and that shit could just ride out for a year in theaters. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> honestly, like if there's if theaters aren't like some theaters aren't going to be open for that long. Like Tenet opens in in Dallas in July, but like it opens in New York in like I don't know whenever New York decides to open. And like I think people will still go. I mean, obviously the box office will have it will affect the box office results of this movie significantly. I wonder if they're if if they're worried about piracy and stuff like that too. Like if it's oh, if God. it's in a yeah, bunch of theaters yeah. but not but not in major not some ma- skipping some major cities if it's in a drive-in it will be pirated that day oh yeah <laughs> so oh, yeah you if there's anything point. worse than the sound quality at a drive-in the bootleg of a drive-in my god yeah i'm watching the, i'm watching this movie the way chris nolan intended on my phone on a bootleg from a drive-in uh booted off someone's radio um all right so we'll see what we'll see what happens with that uh it is currently this episode comes out it is it is june 8th and as of now, Tenet is still coming out July 17th. Um, this is cool. Ryan Gosling is allegedly uh, gearing up to be Universal's Wolfman. Yeah. As they are like trying to figure out who's going to direct that. Um, was it Joe Johnston who did the last one? Yeah, I kind of become a fan of that one. I kind of no. liked it too because I remember it was very gory when it gets to yeah. like the killings. And I remember the movie was like a very, it was a mess in terms of like, I'm pretty sure they did reshoots extensively and uh, it was definitely like a delayed a lot movie. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm excited for a new take on that. I'm excited that it's not part of the quote unquote dark universe that it's connected. Um, <laughs> they say that there's uh, there's no front runner, but apparently Corey Finley, uh, who just did yeah. that education is on the list. Um, I don't, you know, it's not one of those things where like, I see Wolfman in bad, educa- in bad education, but I think he's a very competent director. Um, and the script was written for, by two women, Lauren Shucker Blum and Rebecca Angelo. Wait a second. Is this Jason Blum's wife? I believe it is. Yes. Jason Blum's wife wrote this. script. Oh, that is interesting. Weird that they didn't mention the it. That way. Yeah, um, the variety did not was not a, a privy to that, or they chose to exclude it. Um, get to the bottom of it, everyone. Um, so the, you know, the Invisible Man cost seven million and earned one hundred twenty-two million at the box office before theaters shut down, and has since made you know who knows how much more on VOD. I haven't seen any numbers, um, but probably a lot. So uh, Universal's just going full steam ahead on all these uh, un- monster movies. And uh, glad to see Ryan Gosling in the mix. I have, I'm a fan. Are you not a fan? What's up? Oh no, I like I like Gosling, and I would say even that. Um, I mean, he's been great in some of his serious actor movies, but I think he's a, kind of a weird case in that he obviously gravitates towards the more serious stuff. But I think he's actually better as a movie star than as a like super heavy actor. Uh, like I would, you know, I would pref- I prefer the Gosling of like. The Nice Guys and La La Land and uh, a couple others and Drive, which I guess is sort of a sort of a hybrid. But I prefer that Gosling to like the Gosling of like. I mean, this is this is an old movie, so it's not really fair. But you're like, gonna say Crazy States. Stupid Love? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, no, he, even that. I hate that movie, but he's very fun in it. Yeah. I was thinking about like United States of Leland. They're like even Half Nelson, which is a respectable movie, but it just I feel like he gets kind of 
mannered when he when he tries to go super quiet and interior. So I think a monster movie starring Gosling, I think that's that's awesome. I think he'd be really fun. Hell yeah. And speaking of Blumhouse, uh, Upgrade, Lee Wannell's uh, Blumhouse sci-fi thriller, is getting a TV series follow-up, and the writer's room has been set. The series is co-created, executive produced by Wannell, and Tim Walsh, who served as showrunner, who will serve as showrunner, who also worked on, are you ready for this, Treadstone. <laughs> oh, I'm so, I'm so relieved that the Treadstone guys are, uh, <laughs> are getting work. They found work immediately, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so he just came off writing, uh, Wannell just did The Invisible Man, and he's set to direct at least the pilot, I believe. Um, and the series picks up a few years after the events of the film and broadens the universe with an evolved version of STEM and a new host, imagining a world in which the government repurposes STEM to help curb criminal activity. Great premise. Have you seen Upgrade? I do, yeah. I love the Upgrade. I mean, I would love is strong, but I Upgrade is a lot so of It's so much yeah. fun. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. One of the better, like, no-budget blums. Um, yeah. Uh, in the writer's room, Lee Wannell and Walsh are joined by writer-producers people I've never heard of, who ran the second season of Blumhouse TV's USA Network's The Purge. So basically, Blumhouse took everyone from their shows they canceled and <laughs> threw them at Upgrade, which I'm all for. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, there was a series on Netflix called Marianne. It was French. It's a horror show. It's great. You should watch it. Uh, that guy who created and directed it, Samuel, uh, Samuel Bowden, he is now attached to a horror thriller movie called Cobweb for Lionsgate. Cobweb tells the story of a boy whose parents have always told him the voices he hears in the walls of his house are just his imagination. I'm going to guess uh, there may be more to it than that. <laughs> but uh, who knows? Sounds cool. I'm in. Let's jet to uh, what did you watch? Did you watch anything this week that's of note besides Psycho 3? I watched The Vast of Night on the oh. Amazon Prime. That was a while ago. Yes, actually. I, was, I watched that too. I'm happy to talk about it. I thought I that... Actually, yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I, I kind of loved that movie. Um, I was really, really into it. I didn't really know much about it, uh, except that it had kind of a Twilight Zone framing device and that it was low-budget sci-fi, and I just watched it kind of on a whim on a Friday night. And yeah, I found it really delightful, really confident filmmaking, really fun writing. has a little bit of the, like no-name actor thing where they the the rat-a-tat dialogue sometimes over it maybe overtakes their their abilities to enunciate clearly yeah um but otherwise boy what a I mean, it's just an interesting mix of like having these long takes with rapid fire conversations and then having these and it's like know, 1950s dialogue conversations yeah yeah love that i'm just like yeah. a sucker for that kind of thing yeah and then they have these other scenes that are like just straight up static take monologues in one case just a blank screen you know, kind of radio play style the blank screen part was really great I like yeah. that. Uh, yeah, I just, re I mean, you know, it maybe doesn't come to the most, like, galvanizing of, of conclusions, but I really just... I like the ending, too. I, I, I thought yeah. this was a lot of fun. I, I mean, it plays like a good old-fashioned radio drama, and it yeah. I mean, plays that up by cutting to black during that sequence. Um, all this movie is trying to be is a fun Twilight Zone riff, and it succeeds. And it succeeds way more than any episode of the actual Twilight Zone on CBS All Access from last year. And it's it's just funny to me that, like, why, like, why did this movie... I mean, not to say it got dumped on Amazon, but, I mean, why isn't this movie more... You know, I, I just wish this movie had more of a buzz behind it or something. Because it really yeah. is. It really is, like, well done. And, like, everything you said, I agree with. And um, I like that it, like, boldly was like, hey, um, we're a Twilight Zone we're doing twilight zone like they they open with their own fake twilight zone and you're like 
and like it cuts you know it, it's a tv and then it like zooms in so like we we're literally watching a twilight zone episode and that's so bold and i was just like i appreciate them doing that and not doing like not making this movie without doing that you know what i mean because yeah, it's like yeah. you're sh- you're saying you're just putting it all out there and then delivering and they did and um i really i really enjoyed it too Definitely watch The Vast of Night. I read that, um, I guess, it, I don't think it's playing a lot in the live drive-ins, but it was sneak previewed at some drive-ins the week before they put it up on Prime, and boy, that would be a terrific drive-in movie. That is a perfect it's, drive-in movie, man. Oh, I can only imagine. That would that would play so well. Wow. Um, yeah, I agree. That movie's awesome. I also watched, what did I watch? Oh, God. I watched South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut with commentary on Blu-ray, which was delightful. <laughs> oh, I watched Police Story for the first time, which fucking rules the best. Absolutely <laughs> is, it, is, that the one, is that on Criterion Channel right it now? It is. The first okay. two are. And I watched the third one on VOD, uh, Super Cop, because someone told me it was just as good. And I disagree, but it is fun. But uh, Police Story 1 is fantastic. I watched Crouching Tiger for the first time since I was a kid, and it was incredible. Holds up so well. Um, except for like a little bit of sagging in the middle, that movie is a masterpiece. I think it's great. Um, I watched Friedkin Uncut. I got my hands on that finally. It's on VOD now. Uh, it's just like it's not quite like De Palma, where it's just De Palma going through each of his movies piece by piece. It's kind of like that, but you know, a little less focused. Um, uh-huh. Some good Talking Head stuff with like people who've been in his movies. Really good Ellen Burstyn interview. Really good Walter Hill interview. Uh, really love Friedkin Uncut. If you're a Friedkin guy, which if you're not the fuck is wrong with you friedkin's the best <laughs> i love william friedkin engagement. yes um and i guess here is where i will throw in the section about becky this is me reviewing becky with megan baker on the patreon bonus episode on this episode which you can listen to now if you join our patreon at patreon.com slash new flesh podcast or the new flesh podcast i don't know just google it i have no idea um uh, uh, yeah, we talked about this movie. We talked about two other horror releases as well that are recent. We talked about 1BR, and we talked about, <laughs> unfortunately, very relevant film, Body Cam, which stars Nat Wolf and Mary J. Blige. And <laughs> I can see why that movie was good as a spec script or something, but fuck, it's so bad. Um, all right, here's me talking about Becky. Um, and yeah. now let's talk about, honestly, easily my favorite of the bunch here. Um, uh, Becky. Concur. Yeah, Becky, directed by Jonathan Millett and uh, Carrie Murnian, uh, Murnian, who I don't like, uh, generally speaking, because their credits are what uh, Cooties, which I thought was really bad. That horror comedy with uh, like Rain Wilson from like 2014, about like a bunch of kids getting, uh, basically a bunch of kid zombies, but there's some like. Oh, wow, like a viral disease. Uh, what a weird, crazy thing that never would happen in real life. Um, but yeah, Cooties I wasn't a fan of. They also did Bushwick, which is a movie that played at Tribeca Film Festival then got dumped on like Hulu or something. It's like a military force invades Brooklyn, like a Red Dawn type movie that also was really bad, but had uh, Dave Bautista and Britney Snow in it. And now here they are with Becky, uh, easily their best movie, still has a lot of problems and... Uh, I don't think they're very good directors, but I enjoyed the hell out of Becky in spite of what I would say is bad direction, a bad script, um, a very familiar and even derivative premise. Uh, and it make it just like it makes up for all of that by having very satisfying gore 
and just like a very basic premise that like we all it's very predictable we know what's going to happen but it like goes through the motions in a way that i found fun enough what do you think i would say what makes this movie is lulu wilson she is hands down she blew me away because I I have I've seen her in all the movies that she's been in. She's often played kind of young, innocent girl affected by the horrors around her, whether it be in Ouija or um, House, uh, not House on Haunted Hill, uh, Haunting, Haunting of, of Hill, Hill House. House. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but just put those words in any order. You get it. Hilly Haunty uh, Housey, yes. Hilly Haunty, perfect. And I've loved her in those, but this felt like the first movie where she was just like, no, I'm here. I'm going to I'm gonna change my career. It's going to morph. You're going to see me turn into like a real star. I definitely got like Jodie Foster vibes of like moving from like childhood actress into like teen, more adult. And I'm like so on board. For sure. Um, this movie does a thing that I don't appreciate any movie doing, which is like it starts and it's like, what happened back there, Becky? And she's like, well, let me tell you. And then it's like two weeks earlier. Um, I will exactly. never I will never enjoy an in-media res opening like that. I just think it sucks out any tension that you were trying to build because we all are waiting for it to loop back around to that. So that is just a very minor annoying thing aside. But basically the movie starts with Becky, who's a high school student. Her, We know her mom has passed away a year ago. She's got a tough relationship with her father, uh, Joel McHale. <laughs> um and uh, I believe Joel McHale, uh, basically, she, uh, he is bringing her, uh, Becky to their, like, house for the weekend that I believe she thought the house was gonna, they were going to sell, but he, just, he decides to keep it, and, like, that's really good for her. She's really happy because, you know, it's, I guess it's the house that they were raised in with their mother. Um, but for the, I think it's their vacation house. It must be their vacation More of a house. I didn't want to imply that, but it did. It does, yeah, it is kind of that. Um, yeah, it is definitely As someone who had family had a lake house. Uh, yeah, that's, it's a, it's that's a rich white person lake house. For yeah. Sure. Uh, so Joe McHale shows up with his new uh, girlfriend, I suppose, future fiance soon enough and her uh, son and Becky is just like straight off the bat. I would say she's combative and like typical teenage girl shit and that she doesn't want to deal with anything involving her family but more than that in that she's like actively i would say kind of rude to the to anyone around her it's a lot of rage and as someone who was you know a 12 year old girl at one point like i felt it i was like yeah when you just like have all these like angers and i didn't even have dead parents and (laughs) they're mostly unconfounded but you're just like i just hate everything in the world around me and i want to like flip shit over and like punch walls because I just don't know what's going on. Yeah. So she's got all that going on. And meanwhile, the movie keeps cutting back and forth between like a neo-Nazi prison gang. Um, in like in a, in a brawl in prison. And then like there, there's like these dudes that they're in like a police transport or something. Uh, and don't they like, isn't aren't they on a police transport and then like one of the inmates gets killed and then they use the opportunity to like kill the guards then basically like yeah. closes policemen then uh, Kevin James and another dude stop a man and his two kids on the street and like clearly he's about to kill he kills the guy and we're presumed to believe that the guy kills the kid the other guy kills the kids in the back seat and we'll get to that later um mm-hmm. but basically these two threads uh combine with a classic like home invasion thing. They basically show up and just take over the house. And um, 
it's not random. They're not there. They're not just there because they were strolling by. They are there for a very stupid script reason, uh, which is there's like a... For a MacGuffin, one might say. Yeah, they're there for uh, MacGuffin. They're there for a key, a Nazi key, a Nazi key that we don't know what it opens or what it does, but uh, they're willing to kill a lot of people to get it. That's all we know. Um, it doesn't really matter because all this movie does is set up a situation where uh, Becky is isolated from her. Like she's literally like has was out of the house at the time the home invasion happens. So she's kind of like in her treehouse in the backyard kicking it when all this goes down. So this like once the takeover happens, it basically becomes Becky versus the neo Nazis in like a Home Alone straw dogsy type of violence. Uh, it ends up becoming, and I think. This movie has a lot of issues. It's like very stock in a lot of ways. Even Kevin James's neo-Nazi villain, like I was so excited to see, very boring, very not, uh, very stock role. I think he's fine in it, but you know, if the script were half as inventive as the over-the-top gore, I think this movie would be really something to talk about. Um, and I just wish it did something original. Uh, after all said and done, that being said, I had a really fun time watching this movie. It is trash that knows it's trash. And it just, like, lingers. Like, every kill is more disgusting than the last. And there's a scene that I don't want to ruin, but, like, it has to do with somebody's eye. And it lasts way too long. And it involves, like, kitchen, shitty kitchen scissors. And it is fucking disgusting. And I just had a blast watching this. I, I had fun, even though I knew I was watching, like, garbage, you know? I totally agree. I I got a lot of uh, S. Craig Zoller vibes from it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of like bone tomahawk and stuff like that, it felt like that's what the directors were going for. Of just like, how can we like pull in the grittiness of like cell block 99 and then kind of like mix it with this like home invasion, like kid, kid movie. Yeah. Home alone would probably be the best way to say that. Uh, and, and so I, yeah, I totally thought it was really fun. And I thought the strongest aspect aside from Kevin James was the characters. I thought they gave enough like empathy to these characters that, you know, the, the one guy who we presume like maybe had to kill children. The fact that like his character is constantly affected by his choices. Yes. I thought was really great. I think it's good too. It does lead to some very convenient, like flip flopping of a character's like intentions throughout that. Like, uh, you know, I feel like a better movie. I don't know. I feel like it works for this movie. But, like, I may have called out a, a better movie for doing the same thing. You know what I mean? Like, I just think it, this movie yeah. works with what it has in a, in a way that, like, works for this movie. Like, uh, they do, yeah, they make, like, the guy conveniently will be like, I can't kill kids anymore when, like, earlier he had. But, like, it works for his arc, so we accept it. <laughs> and um, But I, I yeah. believe that, that, like, he, until he killed these children, he probably had never killed children. Yeah. And the fact that he did that, and he's like, this has now affected my psyche, yeah. and I can't bounce back from that. And the fact that he's also, you know, this big six foot well, eight yeah. dude. Yes. And I'm they, like, I like that. I like that too. And I do appreciate that the movie tries to do this whole thing about like how Kevin James is like a father figure to that guy. And like, there's this whole thing about like a prison family kind of system that you get like a, they actually spend a good amount of time like dealing with that. Um, and I think it's because they want you to wonder if Becky's going to like end up under his tutelage or something. But I think that whole thing is objectively silly on its face. And like the movie doesn't really need that angle, but I see, I mean, they really, they really tried to make this movie like, you know, more in more involved than it needed to be. 
Yeah, I also wanted to bring up that, like, I know you are very bothered by the directing in this movie. I think it's, which it's, I, it's like, obnoxiously edited is how I would describe it. But, like, sometimes I the sequences, thought, like, work. Yeah. Do you like the yeah, editing? Yeah, I thought there were some cool, I, there were some things I did not like. A lot of the scenes where it's just, like, camera going in and out of focus looking at stuff, which is that very, like, yeah. cliche, like, artsy indie movie like where they're like, focus, oh, if we just... Yeah. Yeah, if we do a lot of rack focusing, it looks like it means something. I don't care for that. But there was some good cross-cutting that I did find interesting. There's a lot of cross-cutting, at least, yeah. Uh, just a lot of good match cuts. Where it was like, at least it's doing something, it's, you know? Yeah, I, totally. It's not it, It's not flat. It's not inert. It's not inept. It, like, is a movie that moves. And I appreciate that about it. I, I was never bored in, like, it's 95 or 100 minutes, whatever it was. Exactly. I, I thought that it was doing enough there that I was like, you are trying to make your film do something, which I always would prefer someone trying to do more than someone trying to do less. It's my like Lucy in the Sky uh, defense where it's like, that movie is trying every directing choice you could have. And does <laughs> yeah. it always work? No. But is it going for it? Hell yes. Oh, definitely. So I rather take that than like something like 1BR where it's just like, it is, it is directing there is a movie yeah no i prefer this even though i gave them both three stars like in hindsight this is way better (laughs) and i should i should adjust my scale um yeah i had a lot of fun watching this movie i also just discovered that it was supposed to be simon Pegg in the kevin james role but he had to drop out due to a scheduling conflict what do you think about that i i think simon Pegg would have found a way to have fun with that it just feels like kevin james doesn't know that you can have fun with this it feels like he's playing it so straight and serious in a way that you're like, as you said, like, this is trash. It's like, well, then yeah, it's play trash. It it's trashy. Like, yeah. I, I, for me, I joked that he like watched uncut gems over a weekend and was like, I want a serious movie now. And like, just said yes to the first script he got. But um, I think he could, I guess, I mean, th- th- there's no comparing this to uncut gems They're very different um, <laughs> types of films. But um, I do think that, he could have done more with the role, but I don't really blame him at the same time because I don't think there's a lot for him to have latched onto. And I think he does a serviceable job that he was asked to do. Like, he is a menacing, scary guy. And, like, you, you know, he gets, I don't know. I, I found him com- I found him good enough and compelling enough. Like, I believed him as, like, this, as this character. I just, I wanted it to, like, be like something that I'm like, wow, Kevin James should get an Oscar for how crazy he was in Becky. Yeah. Know? Either be more crazy, but also I do, I would put it on the script because oddly the three other members in his gang do have more personality they in do. terms of like yeah. the writing. You, you know where they're coming from. He's At just supposed to be have... this like, you know, scary blank slate kind of guy. And that's kind of boring. Yeah. Uh, and it is very strange because he has this monologue when he pontificates on what that key is that never gets paid off yeah but like that is kind of the only moment in the film where he kind of gives you something of just like and now here's my eccentricity and your but it's just delivered very flatly but also you know there's not much there because you have no idea of really like what they're going for and once you realize it doesn't matter i think when they wrote this they just didn't add that character because i there's no specificity into what he's going to achieve exactly yeah that checks out um all in all i know we're nitpicking but all in all yeah yeah i think we both thought this movie was easily the best of the three we're talking about today and um i mean 
it's been slim pickings this year because no movies are coming out. I'm trying to look through my diary real quick to see if there's a better better new release yeah, Kevin, movie. Yeah, Kevin James year. could get an Oscar, <laughs> yeah, you know, based because, on if no other movies yeah. come out. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely better than Body Cam. <laughs> it's definitely better definitely. than... God, what else has come out this year? Um, I can't... I, I, I liked it more than Z, definitely. Um, I liked it more than Will and BR. Liked it, I liked it more than The Wretched. Yeah, this might be my favorite uh, horror flick of horror the year so far. Wow. Even though it was, you know, we have all these problems with it. I think it delivers... All, you know, does a horror movie deliver what it needs to? Uh, this movie has a lot of kills in it. And they're all... None of them cut away in a, in a way that's like, Oh man, I want to see that. They show you it. And for that, I am thankful. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah well let's say what we're thankful i'm just kidding i'm not gonna make you say yeah it's hard to be thankful for a lot of stuff during uh, <laughs> a pandemic and an epidemic but you know i'm thankful for becky we're thankful for becky so uh why don't you check out becky now on v o d all right wow wasn't that a great review of becky jesse <laughs> sorry <laughs> jesse terrific. didn't even hear it sorry i'm just being an <laughs> asshole all right um we are here to talk about psycho three uh, Jesse, why don't we just start with um, first impressions? What did you think compared to Psycho 2? Uh, did you like it? Did you not like it? What did you think? Yeah, you know, I did like this movie. I would say it's not as smooth a ride as Psycho 2 uh, overall. It's like a little kind of bumpier in the in the in terms of justifying why it exists and continuing the Norman Bates story. I mean, as you said, the first one is twenty something years after the first, or the first sequel is twenty something years after the first Psycho. And then this one's three years later, so there's maybe less ground, <laughs> less curiosity built in about <laughs> what's normal, especially because the story itself picks up just like weeks, I think, after the events of the um, the, the Psycho 2. Yes. That said, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in this movie, and they do find some interesting variations on what you expect from a Psycho story, just as the first sequel does. Uh, I think Perkins does a really nice job behind the camera, and I would say maybe I even like the directing, filmmaking stuff more in this one. I think the use of color is more, you know, sort of expressive and more interesting. The, the, we talk about the, the Psycho 2, it feels a little bit strange at first because it feels like you're watching a colorized Psycho just because you're seeing these familiar places. And that's kind of a cool, eerie thing. But this one really kind of owns, okay, this is in color, this is contemporary, what's then contemporary. Um, I think, yeah, Perkins does a really nice job behind the camera. I don't think everything in it completely lands and it does kind of fall prey to being a little bit of like, okay, now Psycho is just a, as a slasher series. Um, but I did, I did like it. I was, I was kind of pleasantly surprised by how do I mean, now we, I've seen three of these four now and I haven't disliked any Psycho movies yet, which was a nice surprise. So from what I've read of the, like, there's like a very brief review of the audio commentary somewhere. And they said that the writer flatly states right off the bat that he hated the ending of Psycho 2 and his reason for writing the sequel was to fix the misguided <laughs> twist of, of the spool thing. And then you watch yeah. this movie and you're like, well, that fucking got taken right out of that movie because the spool thing is still intact. So I thought that but was they, really funny. They do retcon a retcon kind of J.J. Abrams style um, and say, don't because don't they eventually say... Oh, God, yeah. They, they make... There's a whole sequence at the end, towards the end, I think, where the... The, the character I hate most in this movie, the, the journalist character, I'm pretty sure just like yells exposition at Norman. Just is yes. like, this is everything about Mrs. Spool that we know. And it's like, it's, it's definitely a retcon of what we yes. had been told before. So I guess he got in his retcon a little bit. But from what I 
from what I understand, and I'll, I guess I'll report back fucking next week if this movie ever arrives. But um, I want to know more about um, him writing Mrs. Spool out of it and Universal being like, no, 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 we want the spool. Get the spool back. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, so I guess my take is that I like I like this movie less than two. Um, I think just because there's something lost, as you said, like 20 years between sequels is much different than a few years and like the, the, the novelty has worn off or something. And, um, I, I don't know. Psycho two is such like a love letter and homage to psycho that I felt like satisfied. And I'm like, I don't know what, what more needs to be done. And I, I do appreciate, I, I do appreciate this is very much like Tony Perkins's movie like, it, I, I, from what I understand, he was very, like, staunchly, like, I, I want to make the movie I want to make and didn't, like, resist at all these, you know, universal asks. But then again, he, uh, from what I understand also, they had to reshoot to add more kills, according to uh, uh, Carter Burwell. So there was, at some point, this movie was probably more pointedly about Norman and less about all the random murders that happen. But... yeah. Yeah, I, you can. Yeah, I, I, you definitely get that sense. Like the, you know, kills stuff does feel like somewhat at odds with what a lot of the rest of the movie is trying to do. Yeah, in a way that Psycho yes. doesn't. Psycho Two does not really have that problem because no. there's an overarching mystery to it. To who is even doing these? You know, is it Norman or is it someone else? And with that el- largely eliminated from this movie, it starts to become an awkward fit. Yeah, it's definitely. It's definitely you can feel the Anthony Perkins behind the camera uh, doing. Make, trying to make the movie he wants to make, and then you can also feel the studio being like, all right, it's 1986, and this is the third movie in a franchise that we're pretending is a slasher franchise, so you better give us some kills. You can definitely feel the tension there. Um, but the movie opens with like the most blatant Hitchcock uh, like aping, I would say, in this franchise. Just like it opens with like a, cl- not, not, what do you call it, a clock tower? Not a clock tower, but like a, a bell tower? Yes. Like yeah, a very the- Hitchcocky bell tower. Yeah. Uh, with a woman, a nun, who's, like, about to commit suicide, I believe. And yes. then, like, she get basically all these other nuns are rushing up to stop her. And in the process of getting her off the ledge, one of the nuns falls back and, like, falls back all the way down the, the bell tower and dies. Yes. And then the nun goes on the run. And that's how, like, the movie starts. And it's, like, opening it's credits. Nuns on the run. Yeah, nuns. I mean, wow. What a... Dude, if they were smart, can you imagine that subtitle? Psycho yeah. 3, nuns on the run. <laughs> uh, and then, so the nun is on the run after... Uh, I wouldn't say she committed a murder, but, I mean... It is confusing why she was not apprehended. Yeah, <laughs> like, she's definitely yeah. responsible for that person's death, but I, it wasn't, you know, it's definitely like a, what do you call it, a manslaughter or involuntary yeah. type of thing yeah. instead of a murder. But she's basically hitchhiking, I think, out of that out of that scene. And then there's a guy who pulls up in a car who's like the most cliche, I'm moving to L.A. guy in the world. I think he's got like an acoustic guitar in the back. Uh, hey, he. Yeah. All right, it's our man Jeff Fahey. It's our man Jeff Fahey. Why do people know Jeff Fahey? <laughs> uh, you know, I, he's like a big, I feel like he's a big genre and uh, character actor. I'm going to be honest and say I most immediately associate him with Lost, which probably makes me sound super young. Uh, so that's always kind of made me happy to see him ever since. But he's in tons of stuff. Uh, oh, right on. He's, he's so young and beautiful in this and also disgusting and sleazy. I have to Google <laughs> him because I don't think I rec. Oh, Oh, I know Jeff Fahey. Yeah, you do. He's the star of The Lawnmower Man. 
<laughs> Isn't he that funny that that's my cast. reference for, for him? <laughs> this was only his second film, I, if I understand correctly, uh, his his uh, filmography. And yeah, he is, he is all over the place. He does he does no-name movies and big-name movies. And I mean, look, he was in Alita Battle Angel, so... Wow, yes. That movie's, <laughs> uh, or as I call it, Robert Rodriguez's Big Eyes. <laughs> Great film. Love that movie, and he plays, I believe he plays the dog guy in that movie. Oh, so yeah, that's right. He fucking rules. Um, yeah. I, I love the, like, he's, like you, you nail it perfectly when you say he plays a guy who's the kind of prototypical movie to L.A., but also, even though this is a very early Jeff Fahey role, it's crucial, I think, that he is, like, he is that guy, but also seems like a solid, like he's doing it five years later than he should have. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The character is like moving down, making the big move to LA, like already probably kind of past his prime, which totally. I enjoy. So yeah, as, as Jesse said, the movie takes place like weeks after the second movie's conclusion with like the spool m- murder and, and Norman reverting to like having a mother figure in his house and being a split personality dude again. Um, so, so we are ha- we were, we're with this emotionally disturbed nun, <laughs> and this grungy musician, as they don't they show up separately? Doesn't she leave the car because he's creepy? Yeah, because he he creeps on her and tries to, and he like essentially sexually assaults her. Yeah, she's basically she's sleeping in the car and he's like feeling yeah. her up or something. Yeah, yeah, and so she bails. Uh, good decision, and he is then furious, and then she ends up. They both end up at the Bates Motel separately anyway. Oh, God, Norman. I mean, the, the thing I keep thinking while watching these movies is, like, all these, like, beautiful women just keep falling into Norman's lap. And he has, like, <laughs> he just can't handle it. And it's, <laughs> it feels so bad for this guy. Well, I think that's where the interesting kind of Hitchcocky connections come. You can think of Vertigo a bit in the first section, certainly, with the nun and the, the woman falling to her death. And then... He, the way that Norman is yes. unnerved by her because she has like a suitcase that has the same initials as Marion Crane has a kind of touch of Hitchcock to it. It's not like really beautifully done or really no, but it's skin. in the spirit of Hitchcock. Yeah, I like 100%. that kind of that kind. Of, it's in, it's like a nice little left field homage to like pay homage to a different kind of Hitchcock movie than Psycho. Totally. Um. So yeah, her name's like Marine Coyle or something. Um, but yeah, her, her initials are MC. So Norman sees that and panics. And I believe like he, like, I think he has conversations with himself or his mother or whatever. He like thinks it is her for a minute, right? Yes. He fully thinks that like Marion Crane is like alive. Yeah. Um, and I think we missed at some point, uh, during all this, doesn't Norman go to the diner and like meet that fucking journalist who I hate in this (laughs) movie. Her name is like Tracy Venable or something. (laughs) Yes. Tracy Venable comes to comes to the diner and is asking questions about Norman and then sits down to interview him when he shows up. Uh, to I mean, she's just there books. asking about him already. And then like he just shows up, which is perfect. Yeah. I mean, you can't write. I mean, you can write that stuff is what I meant to say. That's the <laughs> stuff you can only write. Like, you're not she wouldn't be hanging out of the diner. And then the guy she's trying to talk about uh, walks in. But she walks in and um, he opens up to her pretty quickly, doesn't he? Yeah, he he's, you know, in kind of classic Norman Bates fashion, he's not really built for like, like as much as yeah. He, he yeah, as much as he like uh, traffics in a fair amount of deception and concealing, he's not really a natural fit for that. So he always says a little more than you probably would if you were really calculating about it. Um, so, you know, he he opens up and talks about like what it's she's ostensibly talking about, like, what's it like for someone who's been rehabilitated to come back into the world, but still having these, you know, horrible crimes on their conscience. 
Uh, I mean, it's like a weird kind. Mean, I, I don't know enough about the criminal justice system, certainly in 1986 to say for sure, but it feels like kind of a weird conceit only because I'm not sure if that does really happen that much. Um, I mean, he's like a white dude, so it's more likely to happen to him than most people, but yeah. it's it's the, still the, the notion of like, what happens when a serial killer is fully rehabilitated and then let back into the world to con- con- to grapple with his past crimes? I would, I guess the question is like, yeah, what does happen? Because like, does that, does it, is that, is that something well, that's a yeah, endemic? And, <laughs> and two explores this idea um, yeah. a lot. Or like that's kind of the whole thing. Like the there's that whole bent of like the the courtroom scene at the beginning and the whole like controversy of or like the, I mean the whole premise is them trying to get him back in in custody. Yeah. And it's like there's that whole thing running through it. And then there's yeah this Tracy Venable character who shows up and is just talking about more of that serial killers being released. She believes yeah. I believe she has a theory that Norman is killing again, right? Doesn't she? Yeah, it, she's suspicious of him. Yeah. So basically, he opens up to her, blah, blah, blah. But then I believe that's when MC walks in. I think that's when he sees the suitcase and, like, freaks out and, like, leaves. Yes. But she ends up at the hotel after that, I think. Yes. And, yeah. And then I believe, I want to say they have, like, normal conversation and dialogue. I think they're, like, does does Marion, I mean, uh, does Maureen and Norman have that much interaction before uh, what happens in the room? I, I think they have some kind of yeah because they uh, I mean I think she, he at least checks her in and is probably has a has a pleasant conversation with her yeah that he, kind of like inflames his attraction slash you know the his quote unquote mother's you know uh, pr- protectiveness or or whatever is sort of inflamed by his interest in her which is kind of confirmed by that yeah they have a kind of a pleasant conversation yeah and then there's this really interesting thing I think that the I guess the writer and the director nor uh, Norman Bates does here. Which is that um, mother enters Maureen's bathroom later that night to kill her, like in Marion Crane style, only to find that Ma- Maureen has attempted suicide herself by cutting her wrist in the bathtub. And I thought that was such like a unique way to like you know pay homage to uh, an iconic scene, but also do it completely differently. Yeah, I thought that was terrific. That was very interesting, and and you know it got me. That was not what I was expecting to happen. Totally, <laughs> totally, totally shocking. Like the only moment in the movie that I'd say was shocking. I was like, wow. Yeah. Did not see that coming. And uh, I think Norman was also shocked because yeah. he, um, like, what, is, what does he do in that scene? I mean, well, first well, of all, she sees him as, like, a Virgin Mary holding a silver crucifix. Yes, love that, too. Awesome, awesome, weird thing. There's a happen. lot of interesting <laughs> religious stuff in this movie, too. Yeah. Um, but what does she see? I mean, what does Norman, how does he react to that? I think he just like goes in and ends up either. I don't know if he brings her to the hospital or calls the hospital. Yeah, I guess uh, uh, he becomes himself again, I guess is what yeah, I was yes. trying to remember. And then brings her to the hospital and like offers that she stay at the hotel as long as she needs to. And basically after she's released from the hospital, they're become like romantically involved. Like they're yes. kind of dating, I would say, yeah. <laughs> um, which is so funny to say about Norman Bates. But Norman and Norman is good to her, I believe, up until this point. Um uh and then something oh yeah, we uh so we mentioned that the guy from the beginning shows up at the hotel too. At some point during all this, he shows up and is looking for work, right? So Norman yes. lets him like be the the what's it like the what's his name from the last movie? Uh, yeah. Why can't I think of his name? Dennis Franz. Um, 
Yeah, uh, yeah, the, the Des Brown's character. I mean, he's even less. He's not even like Des Brown's character was a manager, and he's just kind of a. He's hired to like clean out the rooms and you know kind of manage. I guess yeah. his name's I Dwayne guess. Duke, so yeah. that's all you need to know, really. <laughs> um, but basically, Dwayne Duke is out at a bar one night, and he picks up a girl. Um, and then when the girl makes it clear that like I think they have sex, and then she wants to stay the night, and then he immediately kicks her out and yes. like throws her out of the room. And I believe that's when she's like in a phone booth trying to call a cab. And then there's like, here's Universal Studios' kill scene that they wanted. Yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, yeah and honestly, built, I built. thought that scene is edited. Like, it's a cool, it's edited kind of like the shower scene, but it's more graphic. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's like not just like mother opening the phone booth and killing her. It's like shattering the phone booth with the, with the blade. And like yeah. there's glass everywhere. And it's kind of cool. So I ain't mad at you, Universal. Universal, when studio notes are right, give yeah. it more kills. You gotta love it. Um, on the next day, I believe there are a bunch of tourists show up, like who are there to watch a football game or something. Yeah, there's like a high school homecoming game or something. Yeah, and then uh, I, I think at this point, we cut to like the journalist, Tracy, who's searching Mrs. Spool's apartment and she discovers Norman Bates's or the Bates Motel phone number written on a magazine cover repeatedly. So she like goes there next. Um, and then there's another murder at the hotel, I think with one of those uh, people from the, the group, like the only sober one, everyone's yes. wasted. There's a sober girl who um, I don't really remember. How did she get murdered? Why don't I remember that? I don't remember either. I feel like it's outside in the, in the parking lot, but I, maybe I'm thinking of the same. The, Isn't the this the, this might be the girl who gets stuffed in the ice in the ice thing though? Yes, uh, which I do remember. <laughs> yes, well, that's they. We you directed me towards the Siskel Niebert review of this movie, and the, one of the clips is oh, yeah. the uh, the sheriff who is actually weirdly trusty of Norman uh, coming in and uh, uh, while he's defending Norman, saying there's no evidence that this this, this disappeared girl has anything to do with Norman. He fishes out an ice cube from the just casually from the ice box, uh, which even has a little bit of blood on it, and and just like pops into his mouth, uh, just yeah. barely missing that there's like a hand poking up from the ice tray, very poorly hidden by by Norman. Yes, that's another cool, that's another Hitchcock like yeah, nod. very Hitchcocky twist. Yeah, a little not twist, but just little you know moment. Yeah, so that girl Patsy did get murdered by mother and did get stuffed in the in the ice yes. box by Norman. Um, and the next morning, the sheriff and the deputy are investigating uh, her disappearance. Uh, and th at the same time, I, I believe the cops are showing up or something. Tracy, the the journalist, tells Maureen about Norman's past, which at this point she hadn't known anything about. Yeah, um, I think she knows. I think he maybe told her a little bit, but not the whole. But not all of it. Yeah, yeah not all uh, the bodies. Yeah. No. So I believe once Maureen finds out about Norman, she goes and stays with uh, this like priest who took care of her at the hospital, father Brian or something. Um, and then at some point at back, I, I'm making it sound, am I making it sound more hodgepodge than it is? Or is it this hodgepodge? It's a little hodgepodge. Yeah. It's a little bit like it's a little scattered. <laughs> uh, at some point, Norman, uh, can't find his mother's corpse. <laughs> and there's yes. a note that says I'm in cabin 12, which yeah. is strange. Cause we're like, well, we know in the last movie there were notes, but those notes ended up being like planted. So like, what the right. fuck is happening? Uh, and then we, he goes to Cam and Cabin Twelve, and he finds Dwayne, Dwayne Duke. Uh, yeah. Dwayne's there, and he's like, actually, this scene is shot really strangely. 
Um, or maybe it's actually the sex scene that was shot really strangely with Dwayne in the same room. But the room is just really like strangely put together. Um, Dwayne basically is demanding a large sum of money to keep quiet about the corpse of um, Mrs. Spool, <laughs> or yes. else he's going to turn over Norman to the police. Um, little short-sighted plan to to blackmail the murderer with a corpse like you know he's cap- what he's capable of and you're trying to blackmail him it's really stupid so i'm pretty sure they fight and then norman gets to beat him to death with his guitar yes which is pretty great or i don't think he actually dies because norman then drives his car to the swamp with his bodies in it and Dwayne like comes back to life and attacks but uh norman still drives it into the swamp and then he drowns yeah that's fun uh <laughs> and then tracy talks to the um who does she talk to? She talks to somebody about this about Mrs. Spool. Oh, I think the, one of the guys. The diner, diner boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She talks to the diner boss about Mrs. Spool and discovers that she was working at the diner before he bought it. Um, and that then she meets with the guy she bought it from, um, a resident at an assisted living facility, some old guy, and he is informed that Mrs. Spool had also been institutionalized for murder. 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 So Marine convinces herself. That um, Norman is her true love, <laughs> I guess, and returns to the motel. Um, she basically don't don't they have like a nice like kiss or something at the top of the stairs? Yeah, they're like they're at the top of the stairs, and like you know, it's not exactly a clinch, but it's like okay, you know, the, I, I don't know if he's gonna is that the, is that some point where he's gonna like show her mother, or she wants to meet the mother, or maybe not, maybe, but I don't know. They're at the top of the stairs outside the mother's room, the mother room. Um, and she falls, but not, Norman doesn't push her. Um, like there's a, is it the mom, the, his, 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 I couldn't tell if it's like, does he shout this or does he hear this or whatever to move? I don't know, but she's startled basically. And yeah, we know. hear mother shouting at Norman and we have yeah. to presume that's like Norman freaking out. Yeah. Right. And he like lose, he sort of somehow, he, he not intentionally, but pushes her down the stairs or yeah, he l- causes her to fall down them, yeah. and she dies. <laughs> yes. And he's, like, so enraged that he promises that, like, he'll get back at his mother for this. Yes. Um, and then that's when the journalist shows up and finds Maureen dead, sees Norman dressed as mother bearing a knife, um, and she tries reasoning with him to not murder her by yelling the family history at him, right. <laughs> which I yelled before. Uh, so she's like, Emma Spool was his aunt and was in love with yes. Norman's father, but the father married her sister, Norma. And then Mrs. Spool kidnapped Norman when he was a child after killing Mr. Bates, believing that Norman was the child that she should have had with him. Um, so when she was caught, Norman was returned to Norma while Mrs. Spool was institutionalized. Um, and then the journalist discovers Spool's corpse in the basement, and Norma uh, Norman takes off his dress at this point, and I believe he hears Mother ordering him to kill Tracy. But when he raises the knife to do it, I think we're we're supposed to think he's about to do it, but then he ends up like dismembering the corpse of Mrs. Spool instead. Uh, so like, are we to yes. think like he's cured? <laughs> um, and then I believe Sheriff Hunt shows up and picks up Norman. And Nor- I think he tells Norman that they're never going to release him from the institution again. And Norman says, but I'll be free. I'll finally be free. And in the back of the car, he's caressing a, the severed hand of Mrs. Spool. 
And he yeah, strokes the hand and smiles. And he gives, yeah, he's like, he's hidden it, and you see, and he gives one of those creepy Norman Bates smiles, which is, you know, pretty. That's that's also a point where I felt like, okay, this is doing, this is the the movie's willingness, maybe whether that's studio mandated or what, uh, to do horror movie stuff is sort of getting in the way of what the movie's supposed to be about, because. You know, just just him being going back to an institution, but also saying, "But I'm free now," uh, is like interesting enough on its own. But this gives the kind of classic horror, like, "But wait, he's still out there," kind of thing, where he's like cut off the hand and is stroking the hand and is like. And then it's so... like at the end, it cuts to a title card that says, "Norman Bates will return in in yeah. Psycho Four: The <laughs> Beginning <laughs> on cable." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's sort of like it kind of goes back on what he's just said in in a way that's not unrealistic given what we know about Norman, but it also just kind of makes it feel like kind of a shrug, like, Oh, he had finally experienced through this trauma, experienced this catharsis needed to free himself of his mother, but also he's stroking the severed hand. So he's not like, I yeah, just, you know, under, I think like, that shot undercuts probably what Norman, uh, what Anthony Perkins was trying to do. Yeah. And I, again, who knows which uh, you, maybe you'll find out in the commentary, what parts were sort of, more you know being pushed for it it leaves the door open for a sequel in a way that is not necessary uh that that i did find kind of like oh okay this was interesting this was going someplace interesting and then they sort of steered it back to like oh the killer still wants to kill <laughs> yeah which is weird also because like when he it's not like norman spends 20 years in, in the institution killing like he's you know, very slowly being rehabilitated, even though it doesn't actually take. So the idea, the, even the implication that he like still is like, you know, happily in the thrall of his dead mother is sort of like, okay, like <laughs> what, what, what purpose does that serve? Not really much besides teasing the potential for another psycho sequel. Totally. I did read that the writer's original script had uh, the killer being revealed to be Duke at the end. Which was like kind of the same uh. thing that happened in uh, Friday the Thirteenth: The New Beginning, which happened, God, uh, the year before. <laughs> I think this movie uh -huh. came out. Um, so let me see if I can find anything more on that. Uh, thankfully, Universal shot that notion down. While that could have had an interesting dynamic, the fact that this is the last that the last film established Norman had slipped back into insanity, making someone else the killer, wouldn't have been bought so easily. Yeah, I mean that's a dumb thing. What what yeah. what purpose would it serve to have Duke be the killer other than to like pull the rug out from under the audience and trick them in the same way that two kind of was doing. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah. Um, and go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, I was just going to say the, um, yeah, but uh, until that point, like the, you know, and, and there is some kind of clumsiness with, uh, the reporter character, as you said, just spouting exposition, uh, that kind of feels like they're in a, they're just in a position with that, with that plot turn about his mother, that there's not a good way out of, you know, unless you really are just doing the ignoring, ignoring and resetting thing, which was not really a popular thing to do at this at this point in horror sequel uh, history. So yeah, this was kind of like the boon of the mid '80s. It's just like it, yeah, this one was yeah. just like fairly standard nudity violence thrown in, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and like there's not a lot, you know. You're left with this ending of Psycho Two, and so you either have to say, okay, that's going forward. That's Mrs. Spool is the real mom. Yeah. Or you have to figure out some kind of way to quote unquote fix it. And so like on a kind of broad level, like, yeah, I kind of do prefer the idea that the, his mother is his mother, you know, just because that's cleaner. And it doesn't like change anything about the first movie. 
Um, but it also isn't handled particularly well here. No, to, I mean, or, it's literally, oh. I, I wasn't kidding when I said that it was yelled at, like a, a journalist shows up and yells like journalistic facts at a man. Like it's not, it's not the most elegantly handled sequence. Yeah. But I will say like, I think, you know, apart from those kind of story things and how it fits into the other two, which is to say not uh, that well, there is a little more, I would say maybe more atmosphere in this movie or sort of more, or maybe specifically kind of a, and Jeff Fahey certainly helps with this, kind of a sleazier atmosphere. Oh, for sure. Um, for sure. Even though, you know, you have Dennis Franz, don't get me wrong, Dennis Franz is in the second one. He gets and, killed too early for it to be ultimately sleazy. Yeah, yeah, like Norman's sort of cleaning up the motel, which has become sort of a drug den under Franz's watch. And this one, the motel is not a drug den, but it is like, yeah, it's like a cheap motel where like, people who are too old to go to high school football games show up to like party the night before and night after. And this like sleazy dude, you know, kind of gets a job and is, you know, sleeping with floozies and, and then trying to assault people and blackmail people. And like the color scheme of the movie sort of bears that out too. It just has a little more of a sleazy, like reddish kind of, you know, seedy, seamy looking vibes that I appreciate. I mean, it's not, you know, I, it's not as like elegant as the first movie and even in the, in the second movie which in, it, in the ways that it tries to imitate the first movie. But I think maybe just knowing Perkins was the one behind it. I was sort of like, yeah, okay. This guy like has an idea of how this stuff should work. It's not just the studio entirely the studio uh, sleezing things up and saying, give us more like tits and blood or whatever. Um, there is a kind of like visual scheme to it that feels, you know, it's a, it's a little more hallucinatory with, with the, you know, the religious stuff that, um, that the nun sees him as the, as the Virgin Mary and all, which I don't know how well that stuff is all, you know, ultimately developed. Yeah. I think but... it's better when it's like <laughs> seeding itself early and you're like, Ooh, this is good. And then later it's yeah. like, Oh, what happened yeah. to that? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of kind of like characters just sort of make arbitrary decisions that don't necessarily make sense outside of the moment. But I do think it's like a visually interesting movie and probably more so than the second one. And I did kind of like, there's just a little more of a kind of foreboding atmosphere, I think. I think the second one, the atmosphere comes a lot from just the familiar iconography of the Bates Motel and of the, the house overlooking it and, and Norman and just Norman's Bates face and all that. And this one, I feel like Perkins is actually using the camera a little more in terms of how he is creating kind of a like... Un, uneasy uh, like you know not exactly despairing but there's definitely something kind of lost soulsy about the way that the, you know one of the main characters is a nun who you know tried to commit suicide killed someone else then tried to commit suicide again i mean there's just kind of a you know kind of a mix a weird mix of sadness and sleaze that i, I thought was interesting <laughs> yeah it's a very interesting movie i've definitely come around to it more talking about it today than i was when i initially watched it um, there's some interesting stuff in here. Uh, the, the makeup is done by legendary artist uh, Michael Westmore, who does like Star Trek and stuff. And he did all the film's practical effects. And while this movie does not have anything near the, br the brutal kills of two, <laughs> it definitely has more blood. And if I recall, the corpse of Spool is really gnarly. I yes. think it's like really cool looking. Um, so the, the effects work is always really cool, uh, has been cool in these thus far. Um, I did mention that weird sex scene with Jeff Fahey. There's like a, he's like, there's like a bunch of lamps he's like holding. I don't really he's understand. Really, what... He's really made his motel room his own. Yeah. He's like, he's like holding the, yeah, he's holding yeah. lamps. There's porn clippings all over the wall. <laughs> yeah. It, That's it, my favorite that he, that he like in tw the 12 hours he's been staying at a free motel room. He like found some dirty magazines, clipped stuff out from them and like pasted them up on the wall just for, you know, just for like the, uh, the, the, I guess the, the nice atmosphere that creates. It's all kind of like lit and kind of a, 
skeezy. It's really crazy point. looking. Yeah, it looks like a, like a yeah. weird like if you, if you turn on MTV at three a.m. like a weird yeah. music video that you find. It's the and, it's the hotel room of someone who's been there for months and he's been there for like yeah, maybe yeah. seventy two hours max. It looks like an early Nine Inch Nails video in there. <laughs> <laughs> um. So uh, what was I gonna say? Uh, Jeff Fahey. Uh, is fun because they basically just give him this horrible character to kill, which is always good in these type of movies. Um, so yeah, I don't think this movie lives up to two. Uh, of course it doesn't live up to one. Um, but I think it definitely is satisfying. And if you're still on board with this franchise after two, then you should definitely keep going and keep watching. Um, I think there's some interesting things. So Carter Burwell did the score for this movie. Yes. And it was his second ever score. And the story of how this happened is so interesting because at this point, the only credit for Carter Burwell was Blood Simple. And <laughs> Tony Perkins had seen that and just loved it and had like made Universal write him a note. So um, here's what happened. He received a letter in a seldom used mailbox from Universal Pictures Music Department. It said <laughs> they wanted to speak to me about a film project. At this point, I believe I'd only scored one film, Blood Simple, and had no plans to do another. <laughs> they put me in touch with Tony Perkins, who was directing, and we met up at his suite at the Plaza Hotel. He told me he'd like the music to Blood Simple and wanted to do something with the music in Psycho 3 that would be different from the previous Psycho films. And he said, the only time I remember being starstruck in business in this business was working with Tony. I was a big fan, and this did somewhat get in the way since I was initially tongue-tied. His sense of humor was so dry that I still don't really know whether he was joking with me a lot of the time. I assume he was. They did additional photography on that film because the studio requested more blood, according to Tony. So I did spend some time on the set. He seemed to direct in a more collegial way than I've ever seen, asking the entire crew to offer comments on suggestions for every shot. Uh, and he said to explain your collaboration with many artists on the soundtrack. This is really interesting stuff. Uh, my friend Stanton Miranda, Steve Bray, and I wrote and recorded a lot of the source music, from, uh, which issues from jukeboxes and radios from the film. The basic tracks of Scream of Love were written for one of the scenes in the film. I believe it's in Jeff Fahey's character's room. After the film was completed, Universal raised the question of having some kind of pop single on the soundtrack album. This was in the days when having such a single playing on MTV provided free promotion for the film. Tony uh, objected to the idea of placing a song unrelated to the film in the soundtrack to satisfy PR concerns, even though that's, of course, what is normally done. Uh, we tried a few different directions. We had Stan Ridgway write some lyrics to my main theme, the one playing as Maureen walks across the desert in the beginning. Uh, Danny Elfman and I worked on a track based on samples of Herman's original strings. Uh, in the end, we decided to just call Scream of Love our single. We developed that piece further with David Sanborn layering sax tracks. Uh, the, record, the record company moved the track to the first place of the album and had Arthur Baker do a remix of it. And somewhat unbelievably, they shot a music video with me and Tony Perkins. Tony Perkins <laughs> played the video on a Halloween MTV special when he was a guest VJ. Um, and <laughs> Carter Burwell put the audio, the video is supposed to be there, but it doesn't work. But the audio of Tony Perkins introducing the movie or introducing the music video is on there. And oh. I will end this episode with the music video itself, just the, the song, oh, which is batshit. I'll let you, I'll send it to you too. Uh, <laughs> it's really funny. Um, I just think the Carter Burwell, who's won an, who's won Oscars for, for his work since this movie. Um, he's a legendary composer now. Um, he's, you know, he does all the Spike Jones stuff. I think he won Oscars for, um, or he got nominated at least for Carol and for three billboards. He's just like a legendary composer. And at this time he wasn't even considering being a composer. And he made this movie with Tony Perkins just because he thought Tony Perkins was a cool guy and he was asked to do it. So I love that story. Um, 
and there's more Carter Burwell's website. He just has like uh, notes that he's written and it's really cool. So that was an interview, but the rest of this is notes that Carter Burwell has on his site. Um, uh, Sorry, I'll cut this part out. Um, I have sort of an interesting like side note that I wish I had investigated further. Go ahead. I was curious that about what else Perkins had directed because this was his first film as a director and this was fairly late in his career. He died in 1992, um, shortly, not too long after. Very late in his career, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And he directed one other film, which I have not seen and now really want to. And may if I it's possible for me to find this, I may go seek it out. A movie called Lucky Stiff. that is about a uh, about a guy who finds out that his, the family he's marrying into is descendants of the Donner Party and plan to kill and eat him. And oh it's my God. from the writer, the writer is Pat Proft. Do you know this guy? He not was, he's like head. the guy who's not Zucker Abrams or Zucker and did not work on Airplane, but has worked on like all of the not as good as Airplane, Zucker, Abrams, Zucker. Oh shit, okay. Uh, you know, he worked on... Oh, he wrote Mr. Magoo. Yeah, he's a Leslie Nielsen guy. The one movie, the only movie he ever wrote and directed was Wrongfully Accused, which was like a Leslie Nielsen fugitive oh, I remember. You know, spoof yeah. style of the Zucker Abrams Zucker team. More productively, more famously, he wrote, you know, he co-wrote, uh, he was like a, you know, it seems like he's like a gag writer because he was on uh, Police Academy, Naked Gun, Hot Shots movies. When Jim Abrams was still doing those movies after the Zuckers sort of moved on, he was there. He also like when the, when one of the Zuckers took over the scary movies, he was like a writer on those. So he wrote this movie that's like not a spoof movie, but is clearly, you know, kind of a weird, probably an arch, sounds like kind of an arch, silly black comedy. This sounds Perkins awesome. Perkins directed And it stars Joe Alasky, who I know as the voice of a bunch of Looney Tunes and Plucky Duck from Tiny Toon Adventures. Oh my God. Uh, he's like a big voice guy. He was like kind of Mel Blanc's replacement. He, I guess, is now also dead. Um, so I got to see this movie. I have no idea if it, I assume its reputation is not great. Uh, Wikipedia claims that it has sort of a, a cult following that developed, but it came out in, um, in 88, same year as Naked Gun. So a big year for Pat Proft. And, you know, I liked Perkins direction of this movie. So I'm very interested to check out Lucky Stiff and see if it's actually available to watch anywhere. Um, absolutely want to watch that. That movie sounds crazy. Uh, I, the only note on Wikipedia says, while a box office failure, the film yeah. developed a cult following due to its quotable dialogue and exposure in Fangoria. <laughs> who did a feature on the film. <laughs> um, weird. Pop Matters wrote about uh, this oh, movie. I used to write for them, but that's so they're they're a real place. <laughs> I'm going to send you this link for uh, Pop Matters writing about Lucky Stiff in 2005. <laughs> um, you may not be shocked to find out there's a lot of stuff called Lucky Stiff, so I'll see if I can find the real yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> there's like weird musicals. and um, Anyway, Carter Burwell says, I had no agent, no experience of writing music on paper, of hiring musicians, of spotting music to picture. I really knew nothing about anything, but Tony made it clear that this was why he was hiring me. So I made out a list of equipment I'd need, in particular a workstation called the Synclavier, and moved to a furnished apartment in a complex called Oakland, or Oakwood, which is famous for housing industry transients like myself. The cheapest Synclavier that Universal could book was in an industrial park in the San Fernando Valley, a very nondescript building whose few employees drove Ferraris. They tried to hide the real purpose of the building from me for fear that Universal would balk. But as I explored the occasional unlocked door, I realized that they made and distributed pornography. They'd brought the Synclavier for their in-house porn composer. So that's what he scored this movie on. I fucking love that so much. Um, 
Tony made Psycho 3 with a dark comedic eye, and Universal became concerned that a traditional horror film audience wouldn't get it, so they asked him to add more blood, quote-unquote. The additional photography extended my stay in L.A., but gave me the chance to hang out around the set and the Universal backlot. I would also loll at Burt Berman's bungalow, picking up tips on how the business worked, agent schedules, budgets, soundtrack albums, etc., for me, Universal was living film history. Hilton Green, who was producing Psycho 3, had been assistant director on the original Psycho, and we spoke about Hitchcock and his imperial presence on the back lot. And speaking of imperial, Tony once introduced me to Lou Wasserman at the commissary. It was all a New York film lover could ask for. The final score to the picture was executed on Synclavier, percussion by Steve Foreman with women's and boys' choirs. Norman Bates plays piano in one scene of the film, and I tried to get Tony to play the theme I'd written for him, but sinking his fingers to the picture was difficult, and in the end, I did it myself. We did get a chance to work together some more when the studio raised the question of pop songs. I love this shit. At that time, as happens practically in this industry, the studios were convinced that the films must contain pop songs for promotional reasons. MTV had just become a form of free publicity for the film business, and Universal pushed Tony to find some pop artist who could get airplay. Tony had been very independent about the source of music in the film. As he pointed out to me many times, he was only willing to be in the film if the studio let him make it the way he wanted. And what did the studio care as long as it said Psycho on the marquee? There are several <laughs> songs in the film that were written or performed by me and my friends Steve Bray and Stanton Miranda, Dirty Street and Catherine Mary are examples. The studio didn't consider us bankable, however. One by one, bands were put in front of Tony and myself and we nixed them, typically because we didn't feel they had any Norman in them. At one point, I got together with another young composer from a pop background. Danny Elfman had just scored Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and we talked about how one might create a pop song for Psycho 3. Danny's idea was to sample Bernard Herrmann's string stabs from the first Psycho and use them as a rhythm bed. This time, Universal nixed that idea. What the fuck's wrong with that? That sounds great. Danny Elfman <laughs> doing the Bernard Herrmann strings? That sounds incredible. Uh, yeah. Finally, Tony got what he wanted through, steer sh for sh through sheer stubbornness. Universal let us take a theme from the underscore and develop it into an instrumental with at least some pop vibe. I worked on it with Steve Bray and, and David Sanborn, and we called it Scream of Love. That's the song I'll play at the end of this episode. It's like five minutes long. It clearly had no potential for radio play, but it was the only solution Universal was going to get, so they went with it. They had Arthur Baker do some dance remixes on 12-inch vinyl, and we even made a music video featuring me, Tony, and a Hitchcockian blonde. Eventually, Tony presented the video as an MTV guest or MTV as a guest VJ. I spent three or four months in LA in all, and by the time it was done, I felt I'd had a rich and complete experience. I'd never felt compelled to live there again. Carter <laughs> Burwell sounds like a really cool, fun guy. I like him. Um, this movie got a bad review in Variety when it came out. The, uh, I'll read it because it's always... These old reviews are so short. Uh, a few amusing little notions are stretched to the point of diminishing returns in Psycho 3. Opening sequence is a full-fledged homage to Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo and helps set the comic in-joke tone of the rest of the picture. Unhappy novice Diana Scarwood is all set to jump from a church bell tower, but in an effort to save her, one of the nuns falls to her death instead. She flees in distress and is given a ride to the desert by a spying musician, blah, 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 and where she's blah, 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 blah. The whole enterprise is dependent <laughs> almost entirely upon self-referential incidents and attitudes for its effect, and it eventually becomes wearying. Main pleasure of the picture stems from Anthony Perkins' amusing performance. And the only credit for that is Variety Staff. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. And there's a Vincent Canby from uh, the New York Times. Oh, yeah. He I'm sure Canby's right on the wavelength here. <laughs> he is. <laughs> uh, the news this morning is not that emotionally unstable Norman Bates is back. He's come back before in Psycho 2. It's that Anthony Perkins, who created the character 25 years ago in the Alfred Hitchcock original, is not only back as Norman Bates and none the worse for wear, but also making his debut as the new film's very credible, creditable director. 
Unlike most sequels, which seem to get bigger, fancier, and emptier the further removed they are from the source material, Psycho 3 has a lean, serviceable, stripped-down quality to it. Like Psycho 2, it's in color, but it's an appropriately seedy Bates Motel color that most of the time suggests that everybody and everything have been left out in the weather too long. It has cast a talented... It has a cast of talented, self-effacing actors who donut stage the material and an efficient screenplay by Charles Edward Pogue, who doesn't beat you over the head to prove that he has a sense of humor. That's a pretty fair review. I, I enjoyed that review. Yeah. Uh, Ebert's review is up on his website if you want to watch, uh, read it. The, the clip is up on YouTube if you want to watch it. Um, the Carter Bowell thing I'll play later. Is there anything else that I'm missing that we haven't talked about yet about Psycho 3? I think, yeah, I mean, I'd say that's that's about it. It's a, you know, it's, I think it's really interesting that it came out the same year as Texas Chainsaw 2, that you could be seeing these two oh different like, yeah. legacy sequels in theaters around the same time, and also during the kind of slasher heyday. It's funny, to th- and I don't think either of them did very well, so it's sort of interesting to see, you know, them sort of trying to compete with... Um, Freddie and Jason and uh, the, the the viewers voted with their dollars and they voted against Psycho and Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, Psycho 3 grossed $14.4 million overall and had an $8.4 million budget. That was considered a financial failure. It was the lowest grossing film in the series to that point. Uh, received only mixed reviews. And then, you know, the next sequel went straight to video or straight to cable, actually. So yeah. that's how you know it didn't do so hot. Um, what else do I have to talk about? With regard to Psycho 3, uh, I talked about the box office. Um, oh, I talked about the book last time. I told you that the sequel, I think I talked about this already, that Robert Block's sequel, Psycho 2, has nothing to do with this Psycho or with Psycho 2. And Robert Block had Psycho 3 as well. He wrote a Psycho 3. It was called Psycho House. Um, it's about, it's the plot of that is 10 years after Norman Bates' death, he dies in the book uh, 2, which uh, he dies in book 2, which I'm reading right now, is what I meant to say. Um, Ten years after Norman Bates' death, a local entrepreneur has rebuilt the Bates Motel in Fairvale as a tourist attraction. Amy Haynes travels to the infamous Psycho House to write a book about Bates uh, when mysterious murders begin to occur. Haynes faces resistance from the community when she enlists the help of a group to investigate the murders. Uh, That's all it says. It's called Psycho House. It's the third book in the Robert Block Psycho franchise. I'm really enjoying the second book. Um, I meant to finish it by this time, but of course I didn't. Um, It also has a nun as a main character, even though it has nothing connected to the movie. Um, I I will report back next week with more about Psycho 2, Robert Block's book. I will report back next week with Psycho 3 commentary, hopefully. Um, And, but the most, for the most part, next week, we'll be talking (laughs) about Psycho 4. I think it's called The Beginning. It is directed by Mick Garris. It's kind of a horror legend. We'll talk about him next week. Um, I haven't seen it. It is now on stars and I already have the Blu-ray in my possession. So I will be watching the commentary. Um, and then, yeah, so we got this one. Then we've got the lovely Gus Van Sant remake. And then we're on to Greener Pastures. I don't know if I've announced what we're going to do yet on the show. And if I haven't, I will continue teasing it. And I won't tell you. But I will say it's <laughs> summary. I may, yeah. I may have given it away already. I have no idea. Um, thank you for listening. Jesse, anything to plug? Uh, you can go to sportsalcohol.com for some podcast, more podcasts if you're interested in some streaming recommendations and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. Sportsalcohol.com. Word. Uh, and follow me on Twitter, Brett Redacted. I'm trying to be on there less. It's not going so well. Uh, and Jesse <laughs> is at Rock Marooned. Um, so, uh, support us on Patreon. Actually, don't do that. Uh, so, so donate to Black Lives Matter. Donate to bail funds. Uh, yes. Go protest. Do good shit. Yes. Um, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bark at the moon and a shot in the dark.
from the only Aussie. I showed you two Aussie videos back to back because I figured if that didn't make you run screaming from the television set, you're exactly the audience we want for Psycho 3. And like many movies today, ours has a video spin-off, and I brought it with me to show you. Here's Carter Burwell with Scream of Love. Hey, what good is love without a good scream?
Hoping you'd be back.